Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Something to Talk About. I'm Randy Wartelski, and I thank you so much for joining us here on the Nachum Siegel Network. I am the child of a Hungarian mother, born during the height of the Holocaust. I am the granddaughter of a grandfather who survived labor camp, and a grandmother who lived in hiding and as a Gentile. I am the niece of an aunt who was born in a cellar. And I am the mother of children for whom it is my responsibility to tell their stories. And so it is this week when we remembered those who perished in the Holocaust, murdered so cruelly and senselessly, that I dedicate this show to a generation of people who suffered so much and rebounded in an unbelievable way. Later this hour, you'll hear from Yocheve Lindenbaum, herself a daughter of Holocaust survivors, who's a gallery educator at the Museum of Jewish Heritage, a living memorial to the Holocaust. Yocheve will give us an insider's look at the museum and its tours, as well as a personal account of what it was like growing up as what she calls a 2G. More about that later. But first, we are here today because of the strength and determination of those who survived, and we remember those we have lost. My grandmother, Zichronali Vracha, was born in a small town in Hungary. My grandfather, Zichronali Vracha, in Munkach. They were married in March of 1942 and together began to build a life in Budapest. But the war cut short their big plans, and in May 1944, while my grandmother was pregnant with her second child, my mother being just about two years old at the time, they were forced to move into the ghetto. But no, no, the ghetto was no place for a woman like Tsutsi Gross. My grandmother ran away from the ghetto and began to live life as a Christian, blonde and blue-eyed, while her husband was forced to work at a labor camp. One day she decided she wanted to know if he was okay. Hear this story in her own words from an interview recorded some 25 years ago. Once... I wanted to know where is my husband, if he's all right or not. I had the two children down in the cellar. And I had um, my husband, cousins, was there, a woman also. She lived in the building, and uh, she also was there like a, a Gentile woman. They knew her, but nobody said anything. And she was watching my children, and I said, I'm going to look for my husband. And they begged me, don't go, because then the bomb that was on the end already, the bomb came yeah. back and forth. You're not going to come back. So I give the address to my sister, and I says, if I don't come back, take the children somehow, do something, and my husband going to come, what, take the children back. And I went out. I went out, and I stepped only on dead people. I didn't see nothing. The bomb came up. I go half away. I wanted to go down there where my husband is. I wanted to see if he is alive. And then that was a malach. I never saw him. I never, a small man. And he comes to me says, where are you going? I says, I'm going there and there. He said to me, why are you going there? I told him I'm going to see my husband. Did you have any children? He says, yeah. Where did you leave your children? I said, I told him everything. Go back right away. You can go. Your husband is free already, and I want you should go back right away. And I promise you nothing going to happen to you. Go back to your children. And here the bomb comes, and everybody is on the floor, 
and me got out got out got out. Who was this man? A civilian or a military? A civil civilian man. I uh, never saw her. A priest. I don't, I, I don't know. You don't. Know. I don't know. I he see. came to me like like a messiah. I'm I telling see. you. I never saw him. It was other people. Why he came to me? I don't know. Okay. So, so you already told I managed, me. Mm-hmm. I managed to go back. And I find that when I came back, everybody turned out, I'm not going to come back because you know how that one came. Yeah. A small miracle, a small glimmer of hope and faith to hold on to in a world so devoid of feeling and reason. January 15, 1945, the Russians liberated Budapest, and Bobby and Zaidi and their two young girls were finally free. What was her motivating factor in the fight to survive? Bobby speaks again. I was so shocked. I didn't know if I'm doing the right thing or not. But I was running. I was running from one place to the other. I, I, I want to tell you something. I did it for my children. Not for me. Believe me, for my children. I don't want them to survive. I wanted them to survive. A story of strength, an inspiration, a mother's story, a story for her children and for ours. We'll be back right after this. Ah. Uh-huh. 
Welcome back to Something to Talk About on the Nachum Siegel Network. I'm Randy Wartelski. Questions or comments about today's program, email me at randy at nachumsiegel.com. That's R-A-N-D-I at nachumsiegel.com. Yocheved Grumberger Lindenbaum is the youngest of three girls born to Holocaust survivor parents. She holds a degree in Jewish studies from Stern College and studied Tanakh at the Bernard Revel Graduate School. Yochevet is a former Judaic studies teacher who currently splits her time between her husband, mother, children, and grandchildren, while she serves as a gallery educator at the Museum of Jewish Heritage, a living memorial to the Holocaust in New York City. Yochevet, thanks so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. So how and why did you get involved in the Museum of Jewish Heritage? In the spring of 2008, I made the decision that I was not going to return to my job teaching, that I needed a break. I wasn't sure if it was going to be a permanent break or not. And in this, during the spring, I noticed an ad in the Jewish Week um, inviting people to, to apply to be at a gallery educator at the Museum of Jewish Heritage. Uh, they kind of put an ad. They have a class almost every year, just about. And you go through an interview process. Anyway, the, when I when I thought about doing this um, doing this job, I said, look, you know, here I am a teacher. I'm I'm used to being an educator, and I'm also a child of survivors. And I thought that was a perfect combination uh, for something for me to do with my time. In you know, now that I had retired, I would con- I would continue my connection to kids. I would continue my connection to teaching, and I would also um, be furthering the education about the Holocaust, which is something that's very important to me. What kind of preparation? was involved in becoming a gallery educator? So after you go, I went through the interview process, which, which took, I, you know, we did a group interview, individual interviews. 
um, once you're accepted, and, and it's only about a third of the applicants that are accepted. Uh, we had classes every week for about three months. Um, and during those classes, we, we had readings we had to do beforehand. We would hear from various people. Some of them were experts in their fields having to do with various aspects of the war or of concentration camps or whatever, whatever aspect they felt was important, how the rise of anti-Semitism happened starting from medieval times and so on. And then slowly, slowly, as time went on, we started to go into the galleries and learn about each artifact one at a time. Um, on the, on the, one of the first lectures we had was with somebody named Yitzhak Mace. Yitzhak Mace is the architect of the museum. He also, he, meaning he designed really mostly the in, the inside part of the museum. He is also the architect of the Museum of Basketball Hall of Fame in Cleveland and of Yad Vashem in, in Jerusalem. It's pretty diverse. Right. And what I appreciated, I had, I had actually been an eighth grade teacher and we had gone to visit the museum pretty much every year since it had opened. So I had been a visitor to the museum close to 10 times as a teacher. And now I was seeing the museum with the architect, whereas all of my peers, this was pretty much maybe their second time walking through the museum. For me, that wasn't the case. And he really made me understand the structure of the museum and how that informed you know, the whole tour so much better than I had before. He, he, showed, me for he showed us, for example, how... One wall would be something that the Germans had done, and the other wall opposite it would be the Jewish reaction. So it and it and it follows you all the way through the museum. So it was really it, it was it was such a depth of I, I was able to have such a depth of understanding. He explained why here there are many lights. Here there's one light. Here there's here there's dark walls. Here there's light walls. We really began to understand that not just the items in the museum, but the whole structure of the museum. It was a really wonderful experience. And then. You know, they brought somebody in to discuss um, orthodoxy and, and um, religion because not everyone in the group. We were a very diverse group. Um, pretty much everyone are retirees, many teachers, many therapists, but not everybody is necessarily religious or observant maybe at all. Uh, there were a whole bunch of what, what, what I call two years, meaning second generations, um, people who are children of survivors. And, and today even they refer to three years. I think we had one in our class, which is a grandchild of a survivor. Um, and so after we did we did these classes, like I said, for about three months, and then we had already started to go into the galleries and learn about certain artifacts, and then we started presenting specific items to our peers. We were focusing on one specific tour called Meeting Hate with Humanity. That's the basic tour that most schools opt for when they come to the museum. Um, and... Uh, Basically, over the months, you, you eventually learn the whole tour and the whole museum. You go home, you read the tour again, you come into the museum by yourself, you spend an hour by yourself walking through until you feel comfortable, and then you pretty much participate. You, um, you shadow gal other gallery educators from other years, which is also a way that you meet people, which is uh, the gallery educators have a book club, they have a mahjong club. They, you know, Many people choose to, this is part of their social life. Um, and uh, so you shadow people on tours, and then as you're comfortable, maybe after the third or fourth time that you're doing that, you will actually present a few items. Then you will begin to do a tour or two. And you, you always know the new gallery educators because they have notes, um, You know, whereas at this point I don't really need notes. I'm sure that through your experience as being a gallery educator, you've met people with all kinds of background knowledge about the Holocaust. I'm sure you've met people right. who have... Lots of knowledge, firsthand experience, 
in within their families down to people who have no knowledge at all. How do you prepare for that dichotomy? Well, well, again, we were as we were being trained, that was one of the things that we did. One person would be presenting and the rest of us would act as various kinds of people. Um, sometimes we were annoying. Sometimes we were people who we were know-it-alls, you know, all, all those various kinds of things. We also get prepared. We're told what group we're having and where they're coming from and what, what type of background they have. I'll always, as I meet the group, I'll always ask, you know, have you studied the Holocaust? Have you, to get some, somewhat of an idea? And, and it's really not such a difficult thing to do. And I, I actually love the diversity. I love, I, I, tend to get a lot of Orthodox groups because Orthodox groups tend to request Orthodox Gelids. Um, but I, I enjoy having pretty much any group. Um, what have you learned from the groups that you've taken around? I'm sure usually it's the other way around. You're the gallery educator. Hmm. What have I learned? I'm, I'm not sure. I, that, that, this one's catching me, Randy. Why did you decide to become a gallery educator? And um, how does your experience as a children as a child of Holocaust survivors fit into that fabric? I think being being a child of survivors, many children of survivors feel that they have a they have a mission. They feel that they have a mission number one to make their lives matter. And they also we, we really all grew up with this idea of of never again or bearing witness, even though maybe we didn't use those words. The the thought that we that our that we wanted to know what happened to our parents. And I, I'm talking about everybody, but maybe it's not everybody. Um some of us had parents that told the story incessantly and some of us had parents that didn't say much. I had one of each. And also as our parents would tell us their stories, sometimes it wouldn't be linear and it would get a little confusing. And I think that many of us, many of us two years, have this desire to try to get it all organized, get the information organized, whether we do that by research or by trying to get our parents' information you know, written down. I think I have my mother's information written down in five different places in five different ways. So we also began to realize that the, the next, the, there were other people that needed to hear our parents' story. I am often surprised at how many people are completely shocked when they hear that I'm a child of survivors. Hmm. When, you know, my husband and I might go somewhere and, and, you know, we, this, this summer we were in Cape Cod and we stayed at this little inn and Saturday morning we all, there was, there actually, we figured out that there was an Arov and we all sat outside in the little, in the little garden eating our, you know, our deli. And there were other families there also. And when, you know, it came to talking, and somehow I tend to find ways to work it into the conversation, people are just, really? Your parents were Holocaust survivors? And as somebody who grew up with it, it was such a regular thing that our parent, that everybody was a Holocaust survivor. What do you mean you don't, you don't believe you never met? And again, these can be people. These can be Jewish people. These can be, um, I, I think it was shocking to me when I was teaching that one year when I said that my parents were survivors. They said, you mean your grandparents? Mm -hmm. I said, no, my parents. And this child could not wrap her brain around it, that there was somebody so close, this mother that I still had that sometimes she saw in the building was, was, a, was a real survivor. So as we began to begin to see that there's less and less knowledge, even though it, you feel like there's more and more information, 
I, I felt the, you know, I feel the need to continue to, to tell people, but in an organized way, not, not just storytelling, not just anecdotes, but rather in, in an organized fashion. What is your parents' story? What are my parents' stories? Um, I'm just, I'm just going to divert for one second before mm -hmm. we say that. There, there's also, for, for many of us as we were growing up, our parents really told us many of the details and, and there was a need I'm not sure on the survivors' parts. I'm, I'm not sure to actually get out some of some of the really horrific things that were happening. There was a thirst to know them. There's been a real switch in Holocaust education over the last 10 years, where the curricula has changed to 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 step away from what they call the hot violence, and not to leave it out completely, but that there was a certain obsession sometimes on children's parts to want to know all those gory details. And to kind of step away from that and teach more of, of the brass tacks of what happens and how it happened with some of those anecdotes to understand the gravity of what happened, but but not as much of the hot violence. So I think that's that's also changed, and it's something that's important for us as educators to, to keep note of. These children need, need to be approached a little differently maybe than our generation was. You know, it's interesting. I have a very vivid memory of watching, I believe it was the miniseries War and Remembrance. I, I could be wrong in that title, but I believe it was. And I remember it was Jane Seymour who was in the film. And she was um, depicting a, a Jewish woman who was stuck in Europe. I think she was an American woman who was stuck in Europe uh, during the war. And uh, I had very vivid images of my in my head of how they portrayed her and shaving her head and putting the striped uniform on her and um, forever that was the only image of the Holocaust that I had in my head. And even later on, let's say in high school, when I learned about the Holocaust in a more, uh, you know, in a more mature way, I guess, you know, with details and facts and that kind of thing, I still couldn't get this image out of my head. Just from, from seeing this movie and, and seeing this picture, it, it was just something that was so vivid to me that what I would close my eyes at night, that's what I would see. Mm -hmm. And that was my association you know, with the Holocaust at, at like this, you know, pre-adolescent age. Oh, I think for many of us, that's true. If you saw Sophie's Choice or if you saw Holocaust, there was a, a miniseries probably before you were born with Michael Moriarty. I, I still can't see him in anything because he, he was so scary as a Nazi in, in that movie. So um, you're saying that that's changed, that we're not, we're not uh, are we not showing those images I, I to, don't, to I our think, children anymore? I think, let's say, Schindler's List, believe it or not, maybe was... As graphic as it was, was less graphic. Uh, it, it was more graphic in terms of, I, I think for me when I saw Schindler's List, it really was an understanding of the linear organization of what happened. Understanding that there were labor camps and then there were concentration camps right. and then there were death camps, which was something I maybe didn't get before. Right. But he he didn't show as much of the tortuous stuff that was in you know the, the beatings and the whatever and the hangings that did occur but were depicted maybe more so in, in some of the movies beforehand. And what, when you bring a tour to the museum, are you careful to say, okay, this kind of group should see this kind of thing and this kind of group should not? That's an excellent question. You know, today as I was taking my, my group through, I was, I was kind of paying attention. The truth is, well, let me go back for a second. When I was a teacher, I used to get very frustrated sometimes. I felt like we took the kids on this tour and they really didn't learn a lot about the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. And... And the truth is that that is, I think, that that is by design. The museum does, the, the way the Museum of Jewish Heritage has chosen to do their education, and specifically this tour, The Meeting Hate with Humanity, is to explain what life was like before the war. 
and then to explain what it is that that created the conditions that would allow for the for the genocide of 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 a group of people of right. the Jews. And so we show them the ghetto. We show them how how the deception happened and how the Nuremberg laws happened. And this is all kind of a slow build up. The actual concentration camp piece is a very small piece. And there are a few graphic pictures, not many, about three or four of them. And when I have younger groups, there is a way that I can kind of avoid those pictures. I have them follow me into another area that that was created by the Klarsfelds of pictures of French Jews. And, and they say this is a memorial to how the Jews lived, not only how they died. Oh. So we bring the children in there and they they end up missing the pictures of people who were experimented on, the ovens, you know, the gas chamber, things of that nature. If it's an older group, then I would walk them. They'll see that, and then we'll go into the Klarsfeld photos. You know, it's interesting because I feel like as I get older, it's more and more unfathomable to me. And when you talk about the, the buildup, you know, you were talking about before, even the buildup is so unfathomable to me that an entire – group of people could be convinced to do what they did and and that people suffered so much under that i i you're right and yet <laughs> and yet you know there and on the one hand if we sit and talk about the propaganda and the build up then where does personal responsibility come where, right. where does that come in right because every individual and and yes maybe they would have been punished and killed but if every individual would have stood up and said, this is ridiculous, we don't kill other human beings, then, and, and I'm not saying it would have been bloodless, but it would have been a very different story. So to talk about that it was all the, the bills up in the propaganda, I, I don't want to take responsibility away from the individual Germans, from the individual people who behaved the way they did, good and bad. Right. Um, but it is unfathomable, and, 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 I guess, and I I guess the questions that we enter into when we start to have that conversation is probably not for a one-hour show. Right. <laughs> um, now, I, um, I recently saw a documentary where a woman was interviewed, a survivor, and she talks about her life in two parts, her life before the war and her life after the war, and that the part in the middle, the war part, is just this big blur of crazy chaos. In, you know, But she, she says that she thinks of her life in two parts, was that your experience growing up as a child of Holocaust survivors? Do you think that your parents viewed their lives that way? I think my father may have. Uh, before the war, he was a yeshiva bacher. He was learning in the Pupi yeshiva in the years before the war, and he would tell us how he, was, he would keep his feet in ice water at night so that he could stay up and learn as late as possible. And after the war, he was still a religious man. He was very connected to God, but he was no longer that yeshiva bacher. Um, and so I think he kind of did divide his life very much so. For my mother, I don't, I don't, I, I don't think that's the case. Yes, there was her life before the war and there was her life after the war. But I believe that her sensitivities are such that she really, the war is with her all the time. And as she gets older, it's even more so. I always thought when I was younger that, that it would recede, that it would recede, that it would um, become less and less so because because that's what memory is like, right? We don't remember something that happened in third grade so vividly, even if it was terrible. Um, but somehow, I guess this is this is something, and my mother is not alone. Many Holocaust survivors, maybe it's because they're less busy, um, 
and and also because when it comes to memory older you know first in last you know first in last in first out you know what we what what the memories that are there are that have been there for many years are imprinted um but i would say that that and and really all through her life my mother was very much it was it it, it did kind of inform her my parents my mother also felt very very strongly that she was saved for a reason and then she told us a number of stories about how she really came close to death and and then something happened and and she wasn't killed and so she believed that her life had to have meaning and purpose um and and that her children had to you know and it was it, clearly it was that about, was a value that was passed right, and it, to you and it was about torah and it was about you know and it was about serving hashem and it was about and that and that was not not that my father didn't teach us those lessons but for my mother i think it was a direct part of the war it was very much a part of the war you know a part of the nakama you know this is our this is our revenge you know it's interesting in listening to the tape of the interview that my grandmother had recorded that I, I played pieces of that at, at the beginning of the show um i saw in my grandmother the way that she described the various experiences that she had a a strength and a leadership quality that to be honest was very different to me seeing her as a as a grandmother um, I saw that, I guess, in a very different way. I didn't see it as, as such a strong part of her personality when she was older. And I wondered, after thinking about this comment, that it's sort of like two lives, that maybe she had put so much strength into surviving and so much strength into running and so much strength into figuring out and using her connections and calculating that maybe by the time she got to New York, she just wanted to live and not and not work so hard at it and just be probably that's probably true but or might be true but i have a question did were your did you did you find were you, was your mother and your grandmother ever like looking for relatives so i think like the looking for relatives is like always we're always like you know i right. mean even on my father's side which is american um, we're always like, we hear the name Yankee doodles is what we call them. <laughs> we hear the name Sorcerer. We're like, Oh yeah, you must be related. We've got a whole family tree and everything like that. But, um, you talk about looking for family. So I went on March of the living when I was in Israel for the year. And before I left, my grandmother equipped me with, you know, the list of names and, um, yeah, I sort of went on the trip as it was very uplifting in many ways and very spiritual in many ways. Um, and I wasn't really sure what to expect, but when we walked into Auschwitz and we went into, I guess they called it the Hungarian barracks, I I saw names and I right away looked for Klein. That was my grandmother's family. And I saw names. Now I think to myself, Klein was probably a very popular name. It didn't necessarily have to be the name of her mother, but I did see the name Klein Amalia, Klein Yitzchak. And it struck me like, oh, my God, there they are. Mm-hmm. And these people that I had always heard about, because my grandmother talked about her family a lot, and talked about her home life and her life before the war a lot. Um, the names were just sort of names to me. And then when I saw their names embedded in this stone wall in this barracks at Auschwitz, I, I just, I broke down. Because mm-hmm. then they were people to me, as funny as that sounds. Oh, Again, I'm, I'm, there, there are so many ways this conversation could go at this point. Um, I think that, that for example, we um, – well, I, I want to talk really about the searching. And I think that's something – my parents were always searching. And my father 
started by contacting the Red Cross to find out what had happened to his family and got reports because although they saw some of them being sent, you know, to death, there were others. My father had Your one. Your father was from where? My father was from a town called Ilashva or Arshava, which is kind of like a suburb of Monkach. You know, his father wanted to kind of live in the country. So whereas my grandfather, my Zaidi Grunberger, came from Monkach and his father and brothers lived in Monkach, my father, my father, he, my Zaidi. So for sure our grandparents knew each other. Probably, right? <laughs> so my, my Zaidi moved to, moved to Ilashva, this little town. And, um, and like I said, my father, my father was learning in the yeshiva in Popa, um, but they came back for Pesach and, and pretty much they, you know, everybody stayed because they were, then they were taken to concentration camp the day after Pesach. Um, and, uh, what I, so even though my father had information and some of it was Red Cross solid information, even before the internet and before these archives and whatever it was, he was still always searching. And I think one was for, he had a brother, Maishi, Maishi was with him. And actually, through the research that I did with my son Shua at Yad Vashem, we found out that Maishi, Maishi was left at a certain point. The, the, the SS came and said that anybody who wants a rest can come with us. And my father always said that he and his other brother, my uncle Ari, were begging my Zadie not to send my, my uncle Maishi. My uncle Maishi was, not to be confused with my other uncle Maishi, my uncle Maishi was apparently like a weaker child of, you know, weaker constitution. And my grandfather said, no, it's so hard for him. And they sent him. And my father and his brother were pretty sure that he was just sent to his death at that point. Um, my son, through, through this research that we did, found another transport of him. So he was by himself for a few months in some camp before he was actually, before he was killed. So things of that nature, my, so my father was kind of always looking because he wasn't sure that, that his brother Maishi was killed. You know, he was pretty sure, but not sure. And then you were always, he was always looking for cousins and relatives and always looking for the last names. And, and that, and I, I mean, I know myself when I see pictures, when, you know, I recently saw the Auschwitz album, right, which is, a, which is really a, a, um, a series of pictures from the Hungarian deportations. So there were, what, a million? You figure... You know, so you sit there and I pour over them, seeing if I can find faces that might look familiar. And, and half the faces I wouldn't even know because I never even saw faces of my, some of my aunts and my uncles right. and my, my father's mother. We have no picture of her, of that Bubby at all. We, we have no idea what she, my father used to say that he himself, when he would close his eyes and try to remember his mother, he would see his sister. Oh. He could only see his, his sister's face. That's what would conjure up. He could not bring a picture of his mother into his mind. Um, so there's like this constant searching as a child of survivors, you know, and you meet somebody and, and, and you want to, and you find out their names or what town they're from and, and, and everything has to have a connection. And, and, you know, what, what you also find is many of the towns, these smaller towns have like societies. My father had a, a phone book where he had all the names of all the people from Arshava that he met. Um, and they used to actually get together once in a while. There's somebody in, in the shul in, in B'nai Shurin here in Teaneck whose father was from Arshava. And um, the first time his daughter introduced him to me, he looked at me. He said, Itzu Grumberger's Tachter, I have to kiss you. <laughs> it wasn't even a question. It was like for him, it was like meeting, it was like meeting his niece. Right. There was, you know, there was, there was no question. Um, so again, there was this constant searching, this constant feeling of growing up when we grew up. You know, I, I mentioned this phrase to you that I, I understand now that we were really born into houses of mourning. Um, as I've come to know people who've suffered losses in, in my time now, 
and you see that it takes years, if ever, for them to recover. We, I, I, I understand that when we were born, more so my sisters even than me, my sisters were born just four or five years after the war. I, I shouldn't make them older than they are. Maybe it was seven years after the war. But that's not really a lot of time when you think about that my parents each had lost a set of parents, and each one of them lost three siblings. Right. I could never imagine how how our grandparents were able to rebuild. I, I think they just moved forward. Well, you're saying yeah. grandparents. For me, it's my parents. Right. They just had to. And, and there was the immigration to America that happened before that where people laid a foundation. Um, Joseph Kamenetsky is one person who, you know, ran around the country trying to establish day schools. And then as, as you know, the survivors came in, they kind of built on the, those little seeds that were started and started to build communities in McVos and shuls. And, and, and I think they were, they were too busy to fall apart. Um, and they, they just, they, again, this idea of this mission, this mission, this mission. I, one of the other things that's always, that just started to strike me a few years ago was Shlomo Kalbach's song, Am Yisrael Chai. As a kid, like you just, you just had too much of it. It was like, oh, please. You just didn't want to hear that song again. And I, I heard a story that there was one point where he sang the song or introduced the song and there was some little Jewish child, I think it was in the 50s, maybe even in Eastern Europe, and the child was passed around and everybody was singing, Od Avinu Chai, Od Am Yisrael Chai. I mean, that song really, it was being written, you know, such simple words, right? Od Avinu Chai, Am Yisrael Chai. It was a response, I think, to the, an outpouring after the war to, to say in a very um, vociferous way, we are still here. And so that song became kind of an anthem, um, I think, I think for survivor families. We're going to take a short break. We're going to be back in a, just a moment with more from Yocheved Lindenbaum and talking here about the Holocaust. And we'll be back right after this.
Listener's List a cappella selection from Choni G. Here on Something to Talk About. I'm Randy Wartelski on the Nachum Siegel Network, and we're sitting here with Yocheved Grun- Grunberger Lindenbaum, the youngest of three girls born to Holocaust survivor parents. Yocheved is a former Judaic studies teacher who currently splits her time between her family and serving as a gallery educator at the Museum of Jewish Heritage, a living memorial to the Holocaust. And Yocheved is here, and we're talking about families, and we're talking about the Jewish community and life before, during, and after this terrible time. Yocheved, you were just telling me during the break a story about your son who went on a trip. So one of my sons uh, had the opportunity to go on one one of these historical trips that some of the yeshivas do, yeshivas in Israel do, and um, he was with a whole bunch of boys from his yeshiva, from Yeshivat Haaretzion, and some of the teachers from there, including Rav Tabori, for those people who, who know of him. And when they got to Auschwitz, it was snowing. It was April, but it was snowing. And they got off the bus, all these boys in their winter jackets and their heavy shoes and their scarves and their mittens and their hats. And my son told me that they're standing there and he's like, it is freezing. I am out of here right now. I am getting back on the bus. I am not staying here. And then it hit him. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. My grandparents did this without a jacket, without warm shoes, without a bus to get on to warm up, without a hotel to drive to. And he said that just did him and the other people on the tour in. It just the the it, it was an understanding of, of a really of a of a of a thumbnail, you know, of a pinky nail of what of what our you know, his grandparents had experienced he said that they, when they got back to the hotel, everybody was like dead. They had, they, Rav Tabori came into one of the rooms and they were laying on the beds and they were singing and they were just anything to try to revive their souls because everyone had that experience of, oh my goodness, we couldn't stand one minute of the cold. Yeah. Um, so that was, you know, a very powerful experience for him. Has your work at the museum helped you to understand a little bit more about your parents' experience coming to this country and raising these these three American girls with this past? Maybe somewhat. Um, you know, the, the museum has a very targeted mission. And, um, and my parents' story, you know, my mother's always asking me, do you think the children get it? Do, what stories do you tell them? Isn't it too sad for them? You know, it's... it's um, but I guess... Um, I'm trying to think what it is that I've learned in terms of understanding my parents. It's not, it's not really the museum that does it. It's, it's my maturing that does it. Um, being of a certain age, I turned 50 this year. Um, I, I would say that really my forties was when I began to understand a little bit of what my parents went through and, and its effect on me. Um, for example, I mean, and, and again, you know, when I was in, when I was in college and I took speech, um, my final speech was on being a child of survivors. And I remember when I finished, P- Professor Schramm, I'm sure many people in the audience know who that is, just put down her pencil and said, well, I don't think any of us have anything to add to that and just <laughs> dismissed the class. Um, but, but at the time, I remember saying, okay, I'm, I'm talking about being a child of survivors, but is that really what I want to talk about? What is the something I want to talk about, right? The, the being a child of survivors, that's my, that's my issue. That's not everybody else's issue. 
what I need to tell the world is what my parents went through. And I need to tell the world that there were all these other people that should have been alive that, that Hitler killed. Um, that I don't, you know, that my grandparents were not, you know, victims of the Holocaust. They were murdered by Hitler and his henchmen. Um, I, I think also as my family has grown, certain things begin to have meaning that didn't before. As I, it's an anecdote that I told you before. This year, I went to shul on the last day of shul for Yisker. And, um, and I'm standing in shul after Yisker and after Musaf, and we start to say Birchat Koenim. And my parents were from that Hungarian Carpathian area. And all of those Jews were taken in 1944, in, in April, May of 1944. All of them around Pesach time on Pesach, right after Pesach, the last day of Pesach. My father described how somebody came to the center of the town with banging on a drum and announcing that all the Jews had to gather the next day with their belongings in the synagogue. And they were going to be resettled, as they said. And that, that was the last day of Yantif. And I thought to myself, how did they say these words? How did they say, Hashem that God should bless you and watch over you? Yeah, er Hashem, uh, I'm 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 losing my my track, but um, Yisa Hashem, Panave Lecha, right? How how did they say these words? Now, how did my grandfather say those words, knowing what was coming? What's also interesting about the Hungarian experience, and this is something I did learn at one of the one of the continuing education we had at the museum. Um, the Hungarians were were really left alone until 1944, and. Whereas, and, and you'll sometimes hear this, you'll hear Polish survivors kind of saying the Hungarians, they, they, they went through nothing. You know, we were, we were, one of my sons has a, has a, um, a grandfather-in-law who says, Hungarians, we were skin and bones. They came with their fur coats. You know, it's a, it's, it's a teasing, you know, it's a gallows humor, but, but, you know, the, the Pol the Poles really suffered for much, much longer. And the Hungarians, there was the possibility that I think they really believed that the Geula yeah. was coming, especially it was Purim and it was Pesach and the Germans were losing the war. And, and really logic should have been that the Germans would have said, you know what? We didn't start with the Hungarian Jews. Let's focus our finances and everything on the war. But that's not what Hitler wanted. At that point in the war, the fo his focus had changed and it wasn't so much winning the war, but killing the Jews. And so they decided to have an action against the Hungarian Jews and really, in, in, and, it, and therefore, although their time under the, their time in ghettos and whatever was much shorter, the experience was possibly much more cruel. There was none of this go to labor camp for a week and come back. It was, you know, go to the ghetto, empty the ghetto three weeks, four weeks later, and go to, con and, and go to concentration camp and be killed. It was a very, very fast and, 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 um, and fierce experience. Um, that's something I learned from the museum. But what I think very, for many of the Hungarians, there was really this feeling that, okay, we're, we're going to be okay. Yeah, it's interesting because this interviewer that had interviewed my grandmother kept asking her, did you know what was going on in Poland? Did you hear? Did you know? And she kept saying, yeah, we heard, we knew, we thought, we, maybe people were saying, but we weren't, but we didn't know for sure. I think there was this kind of like, um, it's not going to happen here. Um, yes, but, but not in, not in such a naive way. I mean, they, you know, my grandfather read the newspaper whenever he could get one. They listened to the radio. They, 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 he was, my grandfather actually was a soldier during World War One. He was, he had an awareness of, of what was going on. One of my sons says that, that my grandfather actually fought in World War One for the Hungarian army and lost a leg. And because of that, he had a pension 
and didn't have to necessarily scrape together his living the way other people did. So he had a little grocery, and attached to the grocery, he had a little cafe, a little coffee house, and the intelligentsia of the town would come, and they would discuss the events of the day, the priest, the doctor, the whatever. And one of my sons looked at me and said, Mommy, Lazy Bean. <laughs> that, you know, that my Zadie created the first, you know, Lazy Bean before, before uh, Teaneck did. Um, so, but but they, they were discussing the events of the day and is the war going to come here? Is it not going to come here? And, but when it, then, it, then it came. You know, it came and it came fast and furious. Um, you were recalling a story earlier. You talked about how your, your father was a fighter. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned a story right. where... Well, my father he had actually, an opportunity to fight back. My father was a character, you know, and, and I'm I'm sorry that you, Randy, never had a chance to meet him because uh, your your husband was one of one of the ones he loved very much. I mean, I shouldn't say that he loved all of his grandchildren very much, and that was also connected to the war. You know, he, as we as our families grew larger and larger, some parents expressed, um, uh, I guess, just just concern. How are you going to manage this larger family? And my father was like, no, we're just going to keep going as, you know, till we have six million. That's that. That was his attitude. Um, but immediately after the war, and, and if you talk to survivors, they'll tell you that the immediate after the war was was a very, very difficult time. Not as difficult as being in concentration camp, but very difficult because they were children. Let's understand. Most of the survivors were in their teens or early 20s. Some of them were widowers. There were, there were a lot of widowers. Um, but again, young widowers, we're talking about men in their late 20s, maybe early 30s, and nobody knew where to go. Nobody knew what to do. Things were, the, the organizations were trying to organize, you know, um, study of various trades and figure out where people are going to go and, and try to help people find their relatives and, and get people, you know, books and, and, and clothing and, and medicine and food. And, and, you know, my father says, highest, the Hebrew Immigration Aid Society actually brought tefillin. And they're not a, necessarily a religious society, but knew to bring tefillin to the DP, you know, with all the, the things they had to bring. But so sometimes during the day, there was like nothing to do. And the boys, you know, the guys would just kind of, they were free. They would go out and they would walk the town. My father was walking in the town with a bunch of, you know, wherever, I think they were in Bremenhaven, I think. Um, and uh, he was out walking in the town with a bunch of his friends. And there was a Nazi soldier who walked by them, right? There were still people dressed in Nazi uniforms. So these boys um, surrounded him. And made him, and they they basically insisted that he give them all the, all his money and anything else. He said they opened up his bags. They he said they were looking for food. That's what they were doing. He said, and and then you know after they took what he wanted, maybe they maybe they shoved him a little bit. They let him go on his way. And my father looked at me. This is you know years later. He said, Why didn't we just kill him? Had a chutzpah to be walking around in a Nazi uniform at this, at that point in time. And he said, You know that's just not who we were. We were hungry. We were not, we were not going to beat anybody up. We were not cruel people. We were raised to be a certain way. We were hungry and we felt that this guy owed us that. Yeah. But, you know, to do, I mean, the truth is they could have taken him and tried to bring him to an authority and say, arrest this guy. He's a Nazi or whatever. They didn't, I'm not saying that they recognized him. I'm just, um, but, but that just, you know, he said, that's just not who we were. Well, you know, it's clear that your experience in growing up in your family has made the Holocaust, you know, as a second generation, as you call it, you know, as, as you're called, um, the Holocaust has been very palpable for you as well. What is the message to the next generation, to the third generation, to the fourth generation? What, what is the message? And, you know, maybe you have an opportunity to 
express that as you know as you work in the museum or just even as a mother and a grandmother well, i think i think there are many levels of messages and um in the museum on Yom HaShoah, they bring survivors in to talk about the artifacts that they've donated. And they, and they basically, you know, they call it giving testimony. And they make a big deal about it that the children should understand that they are hearing firsthand accounts. And this is very important. And there's one woman. She and her husband are both gallery educators. They're adorable. They're both survivors. She was hidden. She said her, her parents had a chocolate factory. And there was a family that her father used to – she said she just found this out this summer – her parents used to sneak extra chocolates into their bags when they would come to the store because they couldn't afford to buy everything. And one day, um, her, her father was allowed out of the ghetto. He had a paper that said, useful Jew, she said. Yeah. And she, he bumped into this woman, and she offered to hide his daughter. Wow. So she, this woman, she said, here's the thing that I've decided I need to tell everybody, and that is we are all children of the same God. All of us, doesn't matter what color, what religion, we are all children of the same God. So that's the legacy, I think, that, that's very important. And, and, and what we do at the museum is that we, we try to explain what happens when people forget that. When there's hatred or prejudice, through, through the use of, of the event of the Holocaust, we show what can happen. But obviously, as Jews, there's another. There, there are other lessons that have to that we have as as Orthodox observant Jews. And I don't know if anyone has come up with a good answer to the why. Um, but we know that children ask it, grown-ups ask it, and I, you know, I think that many of us ask that question at different times in our lives, and different things satisfy that answer. Um, so I think to my observant, you know, groups, what I want to say is, you know, we 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 need to be the best Jews we can be, and that includes observing the Torah. And part of that, Kiger Hayitem Be'eretz Lelachem, right, is to treat all people with respect. So it's it's a two it's a two sided thing, and and I think that sometimes some of the one of those messages gets lost depending on what group you're from. Um, but that that's I guess that is the, should what I believe is the should be the legacy. How much of a responsibility do you feel to impart your knowledge to others? Uh, I, I would say a, a pretty big one. You know, I, I would say that, you know, my, my kids make a joke. You know, we sit at, we sit at the Shabbos table and wait. You know, we, we check the clock to see how long it takes for somebody to bring up the Holocaust. Um, and, and, again, it's one of those situations that if you're part of the, you know, if you're part of the problem, if you're part of the tragedy, then you're allowed to make the jokes. Um, uh, but, you know, so I, I would say that it's, it's a very important thing. Anybody who comes to our house whether it's my children's friends or people we meet, I feel, you know, it comes out at some point that we are a child, you know, I'm a child of survivors and I show them some of the pictures that I have. I have pictures of my parents' families, a little, a couple of pictures before the war and some right after the war and some of their lives as they, as they reestablish themselves. What, what's also interesting, I think, to note is uh, there's a lot of interesting literature that has been written, you know, about the Holocaust. And in the last few years, there have been some interesting books, some of them comedy books. Um, so Nathan Englander wrote a book uh, called, it's a, it's a collection of stories called What We Talk About When We Talk About Anne Frank. And that main story is, you know, that, that, that title is one of the main stories. And um, in, that, in that story, they, there are two people who are discussing who would we ask to hide us. Right. Right. Who would we ask to hide us? And 
many of us have had that experience where yes. we've thought about. I today at the museum there was this woman who you know who saw what school I had and she had a connection to them, so she came out to talk to me and then and she said this is this is what we talk about and I said it's Nathan Englander's book. I didn't even tell her that, but you know and and um, it's it's funny on the one hand, but also it's a it's a very funny it's a very funny truth or um, there's there's a very funny story that I, I that I saw there was a video that was shown at one of the continuing education things we had at the museum. And um, I, I cannot remember this man's name, but he was telling the following story, that when he got to Auschwitz, they walked in there and, um, and they saw the barbed wire and the fences and the dogs and the guns and the, you know, and, and, and the gas chambers and one thing after another. And he said, he looked at his friend and he said to him, who do they think we are? And I, I said to myself, you know, can you imagine having a sense of humor at a moment like that? No. But maybe that's who we think we are. Yechavit, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your insight. And uh, if anybody has any questions for Yochavit, you can email me at randy at nachamsegel.com. And we hope that today we've given you something to talk about right here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Let's give them something to talk about. Something to talk about. Let's give them something.